Okay, can we continue? I'll take the hint when you start shaking your watches. Um, right, okay, let's go home. Next few things that I'm going to say is going to have the big R of repeat on them. You can't even escape repeat here. Uh, but I think just to get the big picture or the, the full picture, we, I need to restate some of the things that I said, said on Sunday. So, especially for this section, if you need more information and you haven't been here on Sunday, uh, you can just get the CD or ask for the notes or something. The Dimension Code makes some very strong allegations as far as the New Testament is concerned and especially regarding the, the whole process of the New Testament coming into being. And it can basically be summarized by saying that it is corrupted. Secondly, it is not reliable. Thirdly, there are better uh, accounts of what Jesus did and said. For example, at one stage one of the characters says, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Now the two tests that we apply to ancient documents are the following. Firstly, what time span has evolved from the time when the document was actually written to the time when I have the first manuscript in my hand. Manuscript in this context just means a written copy. And we see that for many ancient documents the time elapsed is often uh, centuries, in some cases like the Iliad, even more than a millennium. For the New Testament, the first written witness to the New Testament text appears in the year 112 after Christ, in other words, mere decades, rather than centuries, after the Gospels was actually written, and the first full version that we have dates from 330 AD. We have also about 5,500 Greek manuscripts, and when you count translations, anything between 24 and 26,000 witnesses to the, the New Testament text. In other words, the New Testament is in a league of its own in terms of textual witnesses. There are there's simply no other document that even comes close in terms of us being able to determine the original text. Because, as I said last time, the most important way of determining uh, the correct text is to put witnesses next to one another and the more witnesses you have obviously the more able you are to come to a correct text the second allegation that uh, Dan Brown makes is that as far as Christ is concerned we are dealing with a case of mistaken identity early Christians simply did not believe that Jesus was divine and belief in the deity of Christ is actually only something that came along with the Council of Nicaea when Constantine wanted to, uh, in a sense, press his will onto the people of his new empire. About this, the book says, because Constantine upgraded Jesus' status almost four centuries after his death, thousands of documents already existed, docu uh, chronicling excuse me, his life as a mortal man. So are we dealing with a case of mistaken identity? And I want to repeat the statement that I made on Sunday, and I make it advisedly. To think or to claim that Christians started believing that Jesus was divine only in 325 AD 
is simply ridiculous. All the written records from the very beginning, be they Christian, non-Christian, or even anti-Christian, acknowledge one fact, that Christians worshipped Jesus Christ as God from the very beginning. In fact, as I say there on the slide, the relatively close vote, in uh, inverted commas obviously, of 218 to 2, accurately reflects the opinion in the early church regarding the identity of Jesus. The vast majority of Christians from the very beginning acknowledged Christ as God. You don't have to accept that belief, at least accept that they believe that. Do you understand the difference? You don't have to accept that belief, but accept that they did believe it. We uh, saw this example on, on Sunday, which I'll show to you again, of even the walls testifying to the fact that Christians worship Jesus as God. That is the first, ironically, the first representation of Jesus, uh, and it is a mocking one, because it shows a man worshipping a donkey on a cross, with a subscript, Alexomenos worships his God. So all over the Roman Empire, people acknowledged Christians worship Jesus Christ as God. I have to read a lengthy quote now, so I ask your indulgence, but it says some very important things regarding the issue at hand. And it speaks about Constantine's actions. Thus Constantine deified a man whom no one ever thought of as divine, and none of the Christians were bothered by it. And so the same people who often suffered and died for their beliefs were now willing to accept a radical, wholesale change in doctrine without as much as a peep. This is not only impossible to accept as logical, it is contrary to history and fact. Those who study the historical record do not have to believe that the early Christians were correct in believing that Jesus was divine, but they will have to acknowledge that that is exactly what those Christians did believe. Let me read that last section again. Those who study the historical records, record do not have to believe that the early Christians were correct in believing that Jesus was divine, but they will have to acknowledge that that is exactly what those Christians did believe. And the records overwhelmingly point in this direction. As a matter of fact, even in Nicaea, the much vaunted upgrading of Christ according to the Da Vinci Code, the debate was not, you may be surprised to learn, whether Christ was God, but what kind of God he was. In other words, uh, followers of the Bishop Arius, and only two voted in, in uh, favour of his proposal in the end, uh, believed that Christ was in a sense a lesser God, but yet still God. So even there, the issue was not, is he mortal, is he divine, but what kind of God are we dealing with here? The next thing that uh, the Dimension Code alleges is that there are much better candidates for inclusion into the Christian uh, Bible as records of what Jesus taught and of his life. The Dimension Code makes the claim more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. And if I can just briefly respond to that uh, by firstly saying that none of these Gospels pass the tests of wide use and apostolic authority. The Gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were read all through the ancient world and copies of it has been found as far afield as Spain and even the fringes of what we now know as India. 
and to the north and to the south the same into Ethiopia, what we now know as Ethiopia up into the northern reaches of what was then the Roman Empire these gospels were read and distributed all through the then known world whereas the so called lost gospels uh, and that's probably why they are referred to as lost gospels we often have only one, maybe two, maybe three copies which clearly indicates that they were not in wide distribution and therefore not in very wide use also none of these gospels can claim the apostolic authority that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John can claim according to Christian tradition and this has been affirmed as early as the 2nd century these gospels all had very strong tangible links with the apostles the apostles obviously being the people that uh, accompanied Jesus on, during his earthly ministry Matthew, uh, a disciple and therefore an apostle himself Mark, somebody who ministered with Peter the apostolic link here through the apostle Peter Luke, somebody who ministered with the apostle Paul again the apostolic link therefore through Paul and John, himself a disciple and therefore eventually also an apostle the earliest of the so called lost gospels are dated more than a century after the life of Jesus so if we again take the principle that earlier is better in other words that an earlier record will be a more reliable record the biblical gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke and John comes out on top as a matter of fact many of the gospels quoted in the Da Vinci Code dates from as late as the 4th century by 4th century we therefore mean that more than 300 years has passed since the life and times of Christ whereas within, uh, within a generation on the other hand of the life of Christ within that specific generation where even eyewitness testimony would still have been possible Matthew, Mark, Luke and John have been written down we also see that many of these gospels are not really gospels at all I've already referred to this and this is due to the fact that the, the Gnostics, the people that wrote these gospels had a, a very severe distrust of anything physical they believed that the physical was evil therefore not to be trusted and that only your spiritual being is really quite important so when they wrote down their gospels or when they selected material for their gospels they just uh, chucked out all narrative in other words everything if I can put it as simply as possible they told the story <laughs> was basically left out because what you do with your body is really not all that important but what you say is obviously a reflection of what is going on in your spirit in your higher part and therefore that is important and therefore these Gospels are not biographies in the same sense <coughs> that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are but they basically are just um, in the same line as the sayings of Confucius for example where they present saying after saying after saying of Jesus and you are therefore not really able <coughs> excuse me, to reconstruct any kind of a, a biography or a life of Christ from what you are reading in these Gospels the last point uh, on this question which again may come to a surprise as you if, to you if you have read, read the Da Vinci Code is that these Gospels are often anti-women and this is especially true of the Gospel of Thomas the Gospel of Thomas is uh, quoted in the Da Vinci Code as the Gospel representing the sacred feminine par excellence uh, and is therefore we suppose highly recommended by Dan Brown Here's a quote, this is the, how the Gospel ends actually, this is the last saying from the Gospel of Thomas. And um, bear in mind obviously that, as, uh, that, that 
I at least believe that this is not a true reflection of what Jesus taught and that it came about three centuries later. But again, Simon Peter said to the disciples, Make Mary leave us, for females are not worthy of life. So, uh, obviously an extremely misogynistic statement that Peter is making. So, how does Jesus respond in this uh, gospel of the sacred feminine? He says the following, Jesus said, Look, I shall guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in this gospel of the sacred feminine, as Dan Brown touts it, the way of salvation for a woman is basically to become a man. And he has the goal to call the canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, anti-women, and to accuse the church of basically trying to suppress certain strains within Christianity. I, for one, am very, very glad that the strain that did survive was not this one that we find here in the Gospel of Thomas. So why did they lose out these lost Gospels? They were not widely read, no apostolic authority. They were quite old in terms of the time scale. Many of them were not Gospels at all and very often also because of the, the picture they presented of women. The last aspect, or the last question that I would like to go into a little bit is the assertion that Christianity is actually just paganism light. In other words, that everything that we believe as Christians came from other religions and that there is really nothing original in Christian belief. Uh, the, one of the characters said, don't get a symbologist started on Christian icons. Nothing in Christianity is original which is quite a bold assertion to make obviously now what are they comparing Christianity to? Dan Brown is basically here working on a theory that um, and I don't want to here indulge in what, what I previously called literary name dropping but anyway uh, he's working with a theory that um, most serious scholars of biblical times have since started to discount that Christianity was influenced by what we call mystery religions. And these mystery religions um, fell into what we could call, to a large part, uh, the, the Gnostic movement in that time. This whole movement that believed that uh, spirit good, body bad. But obviously Gnosticism was extremely diverse and there were many strains of them. And people then said Christianity just borrowed here, borrowed there. And Dan Brown obviously mentions quite a few examples of what he believes to be borrowing by early Christians of certain elements of these uh, mystery religions. Now, obviously the, the first difficulty with this whole theory is how would we know? Because as far as these religions were concerned, they were called mystery religions, which sort of tells you that uh, devotees tended to keep quite quiet about what they learned at the temple or, or wherever. So, as far as, many of these, as far as many of these mystery religions are concerned, we are not able to, in a sense, reconstruct their beliefs. And therefore, we are not able to test this hypothesis that Christianity borrowed from them. The second thing that needs to be stated, and this is a very important point, is that Christianity is extremely 
clear on the importance of the historical record. In other words, if certain things did not happen, then Christianity is basically senseless and, and we can just sort of do other things on Sunday. Uh, and this is not something that is sort of a recent development in Christian thinking. It comes right from the very beginning. Where Paul, when he speaks to the Corinthians, for example, says the most important things that I have received and which I have also passed on to you, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, is this. Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised to life according to the scriptures. And then he states the different witnesses for these events. And the implication is very clear. If these things did not happen, my dear readers, then your faith is in vain. And in case they missed the point, later in 1 Corinthians 15, he states this explicitly. He says, if the dead are not raised, and therefore, by implication, Christ was not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, from the very beginning, Christianity was very strong, very clear, on the, the fact that certain things objectively happened in history, and that these things were important. Is this the same with the mystery religions? Short answer, no. The mystery religions, to a large extent, worked with myths and legends, and then imbued these myths and legends with their own kind of special meaning to give them direction in life, as it were. And again, quite a, a long quote by a leading researcher in this field, Professor Bruce Metzger, who says, Unlike the deities of the mysteries, who were nebulous figures of an imaginary past, the divine being whom the Christians worshipped as Lord was known as a real person on earth, only a short time before the earliest documents of the New Testament were written. From the earliest times, the Christian creed included the affirmation that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. On the other hand, Plutarch thinks, thinks it necessary to warn the priestess Clea against believing that any of these tales concerning Isis and Osiris actually happened in the manner in which they are related. And here we, here we strike upon the fundamental difference by, uh, between the mysteries or the mystery religions and Christianity. The one dealt with myths and legends which they imbued with some kind of spiritual importance. Christianity very much focused upon objective events in history. For example, when Paul preaches the resurrection, he names the witnesses and then he asks the sentence of whom some have passed away or died but most are still with us or living. And the implication is very clear. If you don't believe me, ask these people. These things actually happened in history. But beyond this, let's say, philosophical divide between these two varieties of religion in a sense, let us then look a little bit closer at the claims that Dan Brown is making. And the first thing we need to assert is that if Christianity did borrow from anything or anywhere, it certainly wasn't from pagan religions. It obviously was from the Jewish religion. Although we would not call it borrowed in the same sense that, that Brown would, um, the claims that he was making in his book. For Christians, Christianity 
is basically a seamless continuation of Jewish tradition. In other words, Jesus, we believe, and early Christians believe, was the Jewish Messiah, the one who it was to come. And Matthew, uh, the most Jewish of the Gospel writers, never ceases to make this point in a sense, because he ties Jesus' life very much to the Old Testament. Almost after every event that he describes, he says, this happened so that etc. or whatever could be fulfilled. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Jesus and his disciples were all obviously all Jewish. And as far as the early church were concerned, the very first leaders of the church were Jewish, or at least belonged to the Jewish religion then. So, this continuation is not problematic for Christians, because we believe that it is part of God's whole plan of salvation and the whole history of salvation. As a matter of fact, and this in a sense works very hard against the theory that um, Christianity borrowed from pagan religions, the early church even had conflict about whether people who are not from a Jewish background could even be admitted into the church. So we could say that the early phase of Christianity was you had a strain, a strong strain of what we could call Jewish exclusivism. And it actually took what we probably would refer today to as a synod, of which we read in the book of Acts, chapter 17, for people uh, from a non-Jewish background, in other words Gentiles, to be admitted into the church. God even had to uh, sort of wake Peter up, <laughs> almost violently it is said, uh, by showing him a vision, you remember that, of a sheet filled with all kinds of animals. And then the declaration, whatever the Lord has declared pure, you may not declare unpure. So it, in a sense, took a lot of kicking and goading to make the early church um, accept people from other religions. Uh, sorry, from other, not from other religions, but from other backgrounds, and therefore also from other religions. And therefore we have to say early Christianity, at least in the very earliest phase, when the New Testament came into being, and maybe probably even a, a bit beyond that, was initially quite exclusive, but then from there branched out, but also under the guidance of people, especially the Apostle Paul, who were steeped in Jewish tradition and Jewish learning. You just have to read his book to the Romans, which was obviously a book to Gentile believers, but again he ties it in very much with the Old Testament uh, tradition. If you are wondering about the extent to, to which Christianity has been influenced by, by what has come before, just come and read the book of Hebrews, where almost on page after page you get allusions to the Old Testament and to the, the Jewish religious practices. So we have to say, if there was any influencing, it was from this direction. Although, again, we would probably not call it borrowing, but a continuation of uh, God's revelation. The second thing that we have to say is that as far as the mystery religions is concerned, the New Testament specifically precedes these religions. I am not talking now necessarily about what, ha what happened in the time of Constantine and also the appropriation of certain symbols, etc., from these religions into Christianity. I am talking about the fundamental teaching of Christianity as we find it in its purest form, obviously, in the New Testament. Anyway, as far as this is concerned, none of the mystery religions are on the scene even 
by the time the New Testament is already completed and had been written. You can go to a temple of Mitras, one of the, the important gods of one of the mystery religions uh, quite close to St. Paul's actually, and you'll see that that dates from about the end of the second, beginning of the third century. And these are typically the times during which these religions flourished. And by this time, the New Testament and New Testament documents had long been completed, and the Christian record that they uh, shared obviously were dispersed throughout all the world, uh, all the known world by that time, and believed by many people in the then known world. The last thing we have to say about this is that it is often a very naive assumption that if there was borrowing, that it was sort of a one-way street. In other words, the influencing that happened was pagan religions influencing Christianity, which, as I hope you saw now, was actually extremely unlikely, and not the other way around. But when you stop to think about it, even during the time of the New Testament, we see the dispersal of Christians throughout the then known world. As a matter of fact, uh, the Gospel of Acts, uh, the, the Book of Acts, sorry, ends with Paul making plans to go to Spain, although he never made it. Um, but still, it was on the cards to go to the end of the then known world almost. And from then on end, we see that Christians just spread throughout the Roman Empire. So again, it is naive to think that even the mystery religions, which as a matter of fact is younger than Christianity uh, when you put it on a, on a global time scale, that they would not have been influenced by Christianity. Again, Professor Metzger, which is the eminent authority um, on, on this time and on the mystery religions, says, it must not be uncritically assumed that the mysteries always influence Christianity, for it is not only possible, but probable, that in certain cases the influence moved in the opposite direction. Many people following the mystery religions obviously lived cheek by jowl with Christians, and many of them actually could have. And in some cases, it is ab- you are able to conclusively show that, that some of them actually appropriated the Christian ideas and brought it into their scheme of thinking. I conclude. Where does all of this leave us? Again, I... Don't expect you to leave here tonight saying, I've seen the light and this has been so convincing or, or whatever. But I would just like you to stop and think for a moment, if you are skeptical about the claims being made in the New Testament, that the earliest evidence, in a sense, conclusively points in the other direction than the claims that Dan Brown is making. That the early evidence quite conclusively points to a direction with which most most traditional Christians today would feel quite comfortable. And therefore, I would just like you to stop and think maybe. And maybe there's more to this than just fables, myths and legends. Because what today's Christians are believing, we are able to show, came down to us in a more or less continuous pattern from the very earliest times. As a matter of fact, somebody without any Christian tradition would be able to pick up the Bible and probably believe more or less the same than I do today. And therefore, this probably needs a bit more considering. Consider, if you will, for example, the fact that 
as Paul later says to a hostile Roman governor these things did not happen in a corner somewhere but the events that the Gospels describe the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus happened in the center of Judaism in Jerusalem and it is in this very place that the Christian church has its birth it is in the very place where it would have been the most difficult for Christianity to originate if the events did not take place as the Bible describes it that the church springs into life which at the very least tells you that there must have been thousands of people who were uncomfortable or unconvinced by the official explanations of what happened and turned their back on them and turned towards faith in Jesus Christ also consider if you will that many people from the very beginning and some of them are even described in the pages of the New Testament were willing to lay down their lives for this message you may say fair enough people fly into the World Trade Center because they're convinced of a certain message but there's one vital difference how many people would be willing to die for a lie if the events of the New Testament were actually just a lie a sham that the disciples sprung upon the world if they actually just stole the body and hid it somewhere how many of them would have taken that lie into the world and then gave their lives for that lie all of them except one yet all the while knowing what I'm preaching what I'm convincing people of is not true I made it all up so again you do not have to believe yet the contents of their faith but believe again or hear again that they were absolutely convinced that this was not a lie of their own concoction it was truth and they were willing to give their lives for it consider also if you will that witnesses were around who could verify or deny the claims that were being made in the New Testament unlike many other documents the New Te- ancient documents the New Testament did not date from centuries after the events that they describe happened you were still or you probably were still able to call witnesses and Paul said as much as I mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians 15 there might be more to this so I want to encourage you to explore, to investigate and then to make a choice and the question that you should explore is one that Jesus himself asked of Simon Peter and it hinges on his identity who do you think I am and again I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that this is too important a question to be left to a novel or to be left to even one book or two books or three books because if Jesus Christ was who he said he was the answer to this question is probably the most important answer that you'll ever have to give and therefore I want to encourage you to not stop at the Da Vinci Code or even stop at the next book that you'll read about this but to explore to investigate and eventually to choose 
because again this is probably the most important question if Jesus is who he said he was that you'll ever have to answer may I suggest the next step two books that you can use to do it uh, the first one The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel uh, where a journalist looks at some of the claims that were made by Jesus and by early Christians and immediately I want to deflect some criticism that some people have had against the book firstly um, the popular touch is sometimes a bit off-putting for, for some people because he writes as a journalist um, in the first instance but obviously uh, he felt he needed to make, make it accessible and that's quite important I would agree secondly the fact that um, most of the people he interviews are Christians now to object to this would be to uh, on the same level as to object to talking rugby to the Springboks because the people in the academic world who are looking at these issues are obviously the people who are, whose faith are being touched and challenged by it so to say that all the people that he's interviewing are Christians um, does not take cognizance of the fact that all the people he's interviewing are also scholars and recognize the authorities in the fields of study that they represent within the book. So the case for Christ is therefore a bringing together of some of the most recent scholarship on early New Testament times and applying it to some of the, the teachings of the New Testament. If however you want to bypass uh, the journalistic approach, I want to refer you directly to one of the scholars. But I, I have to warn you, this is in the first instance an academic textbook um, so it is quite heavy going sometimes but excellent it is called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Professor Craig Blomberg in which many of the, the things that I've been saying here tonight are echoed um, so again explore, investigate, choose these are good places to start but whatever you do do start somewhere to answer the question who do you think what do you say? I am. In the words of the X-Files, I uh, want to conclude by saying the truth is out there. But not in, uh, in a sinister way or anything. But the Dimension Code deals by the fact that there must be some truth out there. By pointing straight back at yourself as a person who is questing for truth in a sense in terms of the book the spiritually naive and the one that needs to learn is Sophie and what does she find? she finds I'm actually a princess <laughs> and actually in a sense I just have to believe in myself and to a large extent this is the best that modern society can come up with DIY religion DIY salvation in a sense all that I have to do is just look into myself and there I'll find all the answers but you know DIY is something that we leave or that we use for unimportant things or relatively unimportant things therefore we have DIY home repairs not DIY heart surgery 
and there's a big difference between the two. And the New Testament takes cognizance of this fact. That we cannot get ourselves out of the muddle that we sometimes find ourselves in. That we cannot just peer into ourselves and find the answer. The New Testament is more realistic about the human condition. He tells us, and it's sometimes so difficult to hear this as modern westerners, but he tells us that we need outside help. And it also tells us that that outside help came in the form of God becoming man, Jesus Christ. And we need to find and pursue this answer. Rich Mullins, a famous gospel singer, in a poem said the following about the western quest for God and trying to find him inside of us. He wrote, They said, Boy, you just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, Follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. And they said, Boy, just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only mystic notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams is the one I've chosen. And I will follow him. May your quest lead you to this place as well. I will now uh, give opportunity for a break. Ten minutes. I know it's very quick, but we do have to take time for questions. Um, There are some refreshments down in the crypt downstairs. So, um, and if you could just please, if you have questions, bring them forward to me. Thank you very much.